Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. I mean, I feel like the United States has never gone wrong betting on innovation. Cryptocurrency is a decentralized unit of account and a ledger. We have access to a wealth of renewable energy in the state, which I'm extraordinarily proud of. We have to pull the carbon out of the atmosphere. There is no solution to climate change that does not involve that. I believe firmly that this is an existential crisis, not just to our way of life, but we're in the middle of a mass extinction event right now across the entire planet. And I do believe we need to mobilize and treat it as that crisis that it is. All right, folks, today our guest was Matt West. Matt is a candidate for the new 6th Congressional District in Oregon. He's one of many candidates, as we mentioned in this episode. We've already interviewed Representative Ron Noble, who's a Republican candidate, and we have a couple of other interviews scheduled with other candidates in this district coming up. So stay tuned for those. But we had a great conversation with Matt. Matt has an interesting background that he's bringing to the table. He is an engineer who works at Intel. His background, he has a PhD from the University of Texas, Austin, and he specialized in fuel cell technology. So he's kind of an expert on the technology that undergirds clean technology for combating climate change. He's an expert on climate change. We talk about cryptocurrency. His bio says that he's the first congressional candidate with cryptocurrency development experience in decentralized finance. So if you don't know what that means, we do get an explanation from Matt in this episode about the basics of what cryptocurrency means and why it's important and why he thinks it could be a progressive tool. So Alex, I'm curious what you thought about our conversation with Matt West. We're getting uh, heavily into crypto lately as it's become a more pressing congressional or more, uh, yeah, congressional and state level issue, frankly. And we will have someone at some point from a crypto group to come and actually talk about some of the stuff in more detail. But yeah, I thought it was a really interesting episode. We covered, uh, we were talking about this beforehand. We really expect people to know and cover a lot of issues. I mean, we talk about cryptocurrency, talked about supply chains, we talked about what's going on in Ukraine, and we talked about climate change and things like that. There's like just a bunch of different issues that we cover. So I thought one of his most interesting points, which I think people don't talk about enough, but was like diversity in Congress when it comes to profession. Mm-hmm. And that point really resonates with me because I mean, yeah, I just think it would be good to have more people who frankly aren't lawyers, right? Like more people, more scientists, more law enforcement people, more ex-military, more business owners and things like that. I think that that, that point was really compelling with me. And I think he frankly said it a lot better than I'm saying it now too. But yeah, I mean, I know he's put in, quite a bit of money into his own campaign as well. And that it's a complete toss up in that race, which on the democratic side, which I think is really interesting because honestly, with the level of candidates you see, you could probably see a candidate win the primary with like 25 to 30% of the vote, which those can always be like, nobody knows what's going to happen because that's not really that many people that need to vote for you to win by that. So yeah, I think it's really good. We were able to have Matt. We'll have more people from the district as well as that race really comes down to the final minutes here, the final stretch. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening to the podcast. Please remember to subscribe on YouTube or Spotify or Apple and give us a five-star rating or a thumbs up on YouTube to help us reach more people. We really appreciate the support. With that, let's jump into the episode. Enjoy our interview with Matt West. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Matt West, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. We are excited to have you. There are a lot of candidates running in Congressional District 6. Um, I think you are, 
you are our first Democrat. We have talked to Representative Noble. We have some others scheduled in the coming weeks, but your background is unique. You come from a different place than the other candidates. I was reading up on you and you're actually trained as a scientist. You work as an engineer at Intel. So I'm curious, you know, tell us a little bit about your background and at what point you decided to make the massive shift from Intel engineer to I want to go serve in Congress. <laughs> it is a bit of a leap. Uh, I continue to be surprised by it myself sometimes. So I have my background, my PhD in chemical engineering, at which point I studied renewable energies such as fuel cells and batteries. And I did that specifically because I wanted to spend my academic career fighting climate change. Uh, when I graduated, I got a great opportunity to go work at Intel and I took it. And I've been there ever since for seven years, helping to pathfind their manufacturing process for ever smaller computer chips. But as of last year, I became a congressional candidate because I felt like as much problems and struggles as people have had across the country the last couple of years, they have been particularly magnified in my district, in my home. Whether you look at climate change, for example, which is affecting everyone across this district. A year ago, we had a massive ice storm that left people without power for a week. Six months later, we had a record all-time high temperature. Every year now, we have wildfires that make it almost impossible to go take a walk outside. I had COVID at the very beginning of the pandemic, and when I had long COVID, I had to go walk my dog in the summer during the wildfires. I had to wear a painter's respirator with those drums on both sides just in order to go breathe outside for the quick you know, trip to take my dog out. Uh, to add on top of that, the houselessness crisis that we're facing uh, during the summer when I decided that I was going to get involved, we were also seeing the Delta wave and our hospitals were overflowing. And it really just felt like no matter how much I was trying to make things better as an activist, as a donor, as someone writing letters to the editor or even my representatives, I'm actually quite sure now that our representative Bonamici will be happy to no longer receive my letters. She was getting quite a few of them. It felt like maybe the way that I could be the most helpful as I felt like things were just continuing to get worse was to actually, you know, suit up or shut up. So I threw my hat in the ring uh, back when I realized that there was a brand new district that I lived in. Uh, so I reached out to a group called 314 Action. They work to get scientists elected nationwide to government. And what was supposed to be a 30-minute meeting about like what would it look like if I decided to do this crazy thing turned into an hour and a half interview. And I left with consultant meetings and a stack of resumes for the people who eventually became my staff. And it very quickly became, you know, a snowball rolling downhill, building up momentum. But that's basically where it comes from, was just an overwhelming sense that things were constantly getting worse and the people who are currently in Congress are not actually working to solve them. They don't have the scientific or technical training for a lot of these issues such as climate change. And so I thought getting another like scientific mindset in Congress to actually help fight these issues on that front would be very helpful. That's super interesting. So I've got one more background, a, a bit more pointed background question that I'm curious. I'm sure you've thought about this. So you are not an elected official. You've never run for public office before when you're running for a relatively high office for Congress. And yep. I was thinking about this. Obviously, there's some huge advantages to having a scientist in, like, for example, you will probably understand the scientific underpinning of climate change, why it's happening, the solutions better than maybe any other congressperson, which would be awesome. But having the scientific knowledge or, or even the technical knowledge of another area, if you're not a scientist, if you don't also have the legislative or the politician skills of persuading and compromising and building coalitions, the technical knowledge won't serve you. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about 
what experience do you have with the sort of, even if it's not in a legislative body, with kind of give and take, compromise, winning coalitions, and you know, building a team, that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So I do have that scientific background as an academic researcher, but what I've spent the last seven years doing is as an engineer. And basic way that engineering works as a profession is you get a group of people into a room, you're presented with a problem, and then you work with the people in that room to find the best solution to that problem. That may not be your ideal solution. That may not be your baby is not what might not leave it out of that room, but working together in a comprehensive uh, manner to solve these problems is the fundamentals of engineering. Yeah. And I, I actually find the point very valid, not even just for issues of like climate change or medical issues or law enforcement, whatever. But one of the moments that comes to mind was when, and this was both parties. I think it was in the Senate. They were interviewing like the tech CEOs and they're like, <laughs> I had no idea even what Instagram was or Facebook. And they're like, Gotta how do you make money, stuff. Senator? And I was just like, oh, <laughs> yeah. oh goodness. This if is- you don't charge people to have a Facebook account, how do you make money, Mark Zuckerberg? That was a real question. I'll <laughs> add, Senator. I remember <laughs> the response. It was a, I, I just imagine too, like the staff, I mean, you know, Capitol Hill staff are paid like basically zero. I can't even imagine the faces that were made. I wish you kind of got like that back end gallery view, but uh, yeah, I, I do actually, I like the idea a lot of kind of different professions, no matter what they might be throwing their hat in just because they're, you know, it seems like Congress state legislative bodies filled with lawyers, et cetera. So you're obviously an engineer and I will say I'm a little biased against engineers because both of my parents did electrical engineering at the university of Michigan. So unfortunately my math stopped at economics. That was basically all I could handle, but there is one thing also that I would say you may not call yourself an expert in this, so please feel free to attest if you do. But cryptocurrency, I know that you've been, at least from your background, very involved in different crypto projects and things like that. You have an opponent who we'll talk a little bit about later and who also actually we're interviewing in a couple of weeks, who is also a crypto guy. I just want to kind of ask, like, what, and, you know, feel free to riff on this however you want. Like, what is going on with all these crypto candidates and like that <laughs> becoming a bigger issue this time around, right? And it's not just on, well, one, I think it's amazing that there's like, two guys with very, you know, uh, formatted crypto policies running in Oregon 6th congressional district, right? But then you have like Josh Mandel in Ohio, who's a super conservative Republican, who's like, I stand for God, guns, and Bitcoin. I think that's basically his quote. Uh, so I'm just like, what, what, what just kind of take us through the moment a little bit. Like what's, what's going on with that? Why is there people like, I, I mean, imagine that's an issue. I know it's on your website. So I'd love to just hear you riff on that a little and bit. And actually, Matt, before you jump into the moment, and this is even for me and others, can you define cryptocurrency? What are we talking about when we say crypto? And, you know, like we hear Bitcoin, we hear crypto. And I just, I when I was looking you up, we see DeFi. What do all these things mean? Can you kind of collect these together before you talk about the moment we're in? Sure. So cryptocurrency, broadly speaking, is essentially a decentralized unit of account and a ledger where computers all across the world have the same copy of that ledger, that database. And all that happens is you'd like transfer information to make sure that they're all in sync. So that's the basic core understanding is just a network of computers that work together, not too dissimilar from the internet. So that's the core concept. Now there's a ton of different things that have evolved from there. And the reason why I've gotten involved in my history is that I do believe it has the potential to be a very progressive tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had my experience on the Ethereum blockchain, which is slightly different, more application focused. And what I've seen there is that whether you're looking at, say, uh, the number of people in the United States who are 
underbanked or unbanked, 60% of those people have access to a smartphone. So that's already a huge ability to reach people who are not being served by the current industry. There's also, say, the ability for people to control their own identity and control their information on the internet. Right now, you have these big companies like Facebook, we mentioned earlier, Google, Amazon, they all harvest your data without your consent and then sell it to other people so they can sell you ads and products. What this now has the potential to do is you actually have to authorize every single transaction that happens. So by that signature, you're not even like opting out. You have to opt in to let them harvest your data. So there's a complete different like shifting of the power dynamics on the internet that gives a lot more power to the end users. It like helps to democratize the internet in a very real way. So that's what brought me to that in terms of why I started doing some work in decentralized finance was helping to provide tools to people, uh, financial services tools that have been historically, they've been excluded from because they've only been accessible to the very elite and the very powerful. Now with these new technologies, anyone with an internet access is able to partake and use them. So that's what brought me to it. Right now, I would say the reason why there's such an explosion of people in this industry, this arena, getting into politics is a bit of a multifaceted thing. To be honest, I did not expect to be having to talk about this when I was on the campaign trail. I got involved because of climate change, of healthcare, of all those very acute problems. But this is part of my background. It has been something that I've worked on over the last couple of years. And what happened is there has been an explosion in the community when it started with the 605 OI provision in the infrastructure bill, when that was released and announced, it was basically, to anyone in the industry, it was fundamentally unworkable. And it was the equivalent of trying to write a law to get Santa Claus to stop doing a thing. Like, it was just, it was impossible to enforce. So what that meant is that a lot of the people who are currently in power did not really understand the technological underpinnings of this new technology and this new industry. So people realized that they needed to get involved. So like they needed to have more, uh, the current people in office needed to have a better understanding of this technology. So some people started doing lobbying and whatnot, but really it comes down to, I think what was a perfect example for uh, is Senator Wyden. For, he is an ally to the industry now as well, another Oregonian. And he's somebody who didn't understand it a lot to begin with, but he's been listening to the community, taking their concerns into account and helping to write amendments. But it really started with the 605 OI provision. And that's where the pe people realized that the current people in power, much like with Facebook and how that side of the technology industry works, didn't necessarily understand how this new emerging technology worked either. And so that's why a lot of people have felt the need to become more politically active right now. Hmm. Yeah, and, and maybe Matt, this is more financial advice, but uh, I spent a hundred thousand dollars on a monkey photo. My wife said it was a bad investment. <laughs> uh, so maybe you could. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I always joke to my wife. She's like, "I don't get this NFT thing." I'm like, "You just don't understand the new economy." You know, like, monkey picture. Yeah, the, uh, the, the economy but, of JPEGs, for sure. The economy of JPEGs. Wait, I am uh, curious. Do you, you since you know something about this, do you own NFTs? Have you purchased any NFTs? Uh, I do not own the ones that you're aware of. There is one that I did end up buying. Uh, it was drawn by, they're called Cupcats. Uh, it was drawn mm -hmm. by uh, a woman in Eastern Europe. And it was basically just pictures of cats and like, you know, cupcake sort of like things. 
I thought it was ridiculously cute. So I, I got it uh, when it was fairly cheap. But I do not own those board apes or any of the other ones that people are going crazy for at the moment. Got it. Gotcha. No, I love to hear that. And getting a little bit back to the to the crypto policy. I mean, the and again, I love talking about issues that are, you know, really like cross-partisan in the sense of you have Democrats like Elizabeth Warren, who I know are mm-hmm. very opposed to crypto. You also have Republicans who are very opposed to crypto. And on the reverse end, you have people who are very progressive, who I'd say are really pro-crypto, very conservative, who are pro-crypto. So the the cross-partisan lines there don't really exist up until this point. I know that President Biden recently put out an executive order to sort of like study the issue more. I'm curious from your perspective of, and I know obviously there's kind of the bureaucratic side, then there's the actual legislative side. You know, you're running for Congress. You're not, you know, trying to be a a bureaucrat or Biden appointee maybe at some point. But uh, (laughs) what are kind of the issues that, you know, you've worked in this space, you've obviously followed it, like that you think could kind of keep America in the forefront of this, or honestly, maybe even bringing it back local. And I asked this question to Jimmy Crumpacker because he's also a crypto guy and knows the two twins who I'm blanking on their names right now. Winkle, the Winklevoss twins. twins. The Winklevoss, yeah, he's friends with them. It's like, you know, what what would be either policies for the U.S. or kind of for Oregon to like stay at the, you know, the forefront of cryptocurrency? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I feel like the United States has never gone wrong betting on innovation. And in this instance, this is a brand new technology, which has massive potential, but like any other technology, it also has potential downsides and downfalls, but that's where smart, effective regulations come into play. For example, you can look at how we now have an internet that is essentially run by four or five mega you know, corporations that control everything on the internet. Whereas at the very beginning, that wasn't necessarily how people thought it was going to be. Uh, but you know, the situation has led us to this moment. And I think we're looking at the same sort of thing here, unless we get people in office who actually can provide regulation. In terms of Oregon and what it can do, I think we have a really interesting possibility here in that we have some of the industry at home, but we also have much of the other tech industry as well. We have a few, like, what's what I'm looking for? Facebook server farms in Oregon. Uh, so we already yeah, do- Yeah, they're out in Prineville, I think. Yeah, Google and Amazon or Apple have some facilities out there also. Yeah. We have access to a wealth of renewable energy in the state, which I'm extraordinarily proud of. And because of that, we have a lot of companies coming here to help run their data centers because of that access to renewable, uh, affordable energy. So I would like to see Oregon become a real leader in this industry We have a risk now of not just getting to a scenario where this is not going to be regulated and people are going to be at risk or at odds for it, but we're at a risk of offshoring this technology and coming to it later. The way that I look at it is this technology has been invented and I don't believe it's going anywhere. All we can do in this country is either shove it underground or shove it offshore. Should we choose to come back to it in a couple of years or decade or what have you, by that point, we'll be coming back to this technology after it's been developed overseas, and it may not really reflect our values of what we believe the network should be. For example, in the United States, we have uh, net neutrality, which is actually we have that worldwide, but that's an outcome of the fact that that the internet was primarily developed here, and we helped to lead the development of the current internet as we know it in the United States. If you look at China's version of the internet, it's vastly different. So I think that would be the same sort of scenario if we don't get involved and we don't help to shape this emerging technology at home. And you're absolutely right. I'm finding it really interesting how it is 
uh, not it should not be a bipartisan issue, and you do have people on both sides of the aisle for and against it. Uh, should I be elected to Congress, there is a blockchain caucus, which I would probably become a member of. Senator Ted Cruz is also a member of that caucus, and I think that's one of those perfect examples of how this can bridge a political divide. That's awesome. I appreciate you shedding some light on crypto for us. I will transition us back to a more traditional political issue, which is healthcare. And you mentioned healthcare. I think, I believe you're on the record as a supporter of Medicare for all. Absolutely. Um, So this is what I want to ask you about healthcare. It seems to me, so we currently have a 50-50 tie in the United States Senate. We do have a slim majority of Democrats in the House. Most political prognosticators are imagining a tough year for Democrats in 2022. I think my co-host here is pretty excited about what he sees coming down the pike in the midterm elections. Given that, or even if we do have a surprisingly good year for Democrats, it seems like Medicare for all just isn't going to happen unless we get to 60 votes in the Senate, or there's some unforeseen crossover appeal with Republicans, or potentially, you know, we I think that we'd have to like get a new parliamentarian who reinterprets, you know, but like it seems unlikely. So A, I want to know if you agree with that framing. And if that is true, what can be done to improve healthcare absent wholesale reform of the system? Are there legislative ideas? Are there policy tweaks? Are there ways to cut the costs of healthcare or at least decrease the level of healthcare inflation year to year? I guess that's my thought. A, do you buy my framing on Medicare for All? And B, are there other smaller tweaks we can make to help people? So I'm a firm believer in not letting the perfect become the enemy of the good. And while I do believe that Medicare for All is the goal that we should be pushing for, in that interim time, I'm not going to overlook common sense solutions that will help people until we get to a point where that does become a political reality. We should let Medicare negotiate drug prices. We should lower the age of Medicare. We should allow for these sorts of things that will help to drive real help for real people. And we shouldn't just not do those because we're trying to make a perfect system over here instead. It doesn't matter to me whether I'm serving in the majority or the minority, whether we have 60 votes or we get rid of the filibuster. I will be looking to institute changes that actually help people. I'll be meeting with federal representatives every day to pass legislation in order to help our planet and to help working people. In terms of healthcare, I think there's multiple paths towards that. But as I said, we should not let the perfect become the enemy of the good. And then, and this is kind of like a rapid fire policy round. So we'll be all over the place, which can even be exhausting for us sometimes. I can't even imagine how exhausting (laughs) it could be. People have to answer this stuff. So the, the first question and kind of a, I have a question after this, but in terms of, you know, I read your campaign website and obviously talked a little bit about it before, uh, you have a big focus on climate change. I know that a lot of kind of like the political issue to get around for at least some on the left seems to be like the Green New Deal, but I've also heard from people, you know, they're like, ah, it's probably not feasible. There's other changes that we could make. What's sort of like your ideal, I guess, climate platform in the sense of, you know, maybe you're Speaker of the House, you can push through your agenda of what you'd like. It seems a little bit more realistic than like a two or three trillion dollar Green New Deal package, or maybe that is the position that you're at. Just kind of curious, because I know also you obviously look at this from the high level, but then you have kind of the the knowledge expertise, and I think that's something that's left out a lot in the climate debate. Like I think, and Ben, you can totally correct me if I'm wrong, but that like Oregon has resolutions that we're going to have like no fossil fuels or very little fossil fuels by 2030, which just from a technology perspective doesn't seem very likely. But curious if you could kind of 
talk about that, but then also like maybe new technologies we should be excited about too that you've kind of been seeing. Yeah, that's great. So I think there's an immediate thing that we should talk about, which is the goal is to be carbon neutral or carbon negative, not no carbon whatsoever. We do need to keep in mind that part of the solution comes to actually pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere putting it into, you know, sequestering, or whether we put it into underground reservoirs, or we turn it into things like wood and build homes with it. We have to pull the carbon out of the atmosphere. There is no solution to climate change that does not involve that. Outside of that aspect, I believe firmly that this is an existential crisis, not just to our way of life, but we're in the middle of a mass extinction event right now across the entire planet. And I do believe we need to mobilize and treat it as that crisis that it is. Right now, we are seeing an iceless Arctic uh, within the next couple of years in the middle of summer, which is essentially unheard of. Massive collapses of ice sheets across the entire world. If memory serves, I just read a news article about the collapse of an ice sheet in Antarctica this last week, and that ice sheet has not ever collapsed on human record ever. And that's the reality of what we're looking at right now. We need to drive forward with aggressive, bold solutions. I do believe the Green New Deal is a starting point. It's not necessarily the end game of where we should go. I do believe we need to transition fossil fuel subsidies over to renewable energy technologies in the span of 15 years. And in so doing, make sure that we help to subsidize the people who are actually consuming, not just the producers at the top. Right now, when you look to go buy, say, an electric vehicle, they are fundamentally more expensive than new fossil fuel vehicles. Just due to the nature of it being a new technology, they may have to recover their, their cost in the manufacturing process. The way that we have that rebate is that for manufacturers, should they make N number of vehicles, those first vehicles up until that point have a rebate associated with it of $7,500. After that limit, once that's hit, there is no more rebate. That's why you can't buy a Tesla with a rebate anymore because they've sold enough electric vehicles that they no longer qualify. Mm. That rebate needs to be associated to the consumer, not the manufacturer, because outside of that sort of situation, you're going to have the people who are currently the most at risk for a changing climate asked to pay more than should be reasonable of them. We need to move towards a scenario where we subsidize the individual people not necessarily the manufacturers. So I do hear you. I do hear your concerns uh, regarding uh, expense, but I do view this as a sort of, you know, wartime New Deal sort of infrastructure where we have the opportunity to spend this money, but it's not just going to go to waste. It is going to be investments. There's going to be a lot of infrastructure built, which is going to be a lot of jobs. A lot of the cities in this district do not have the capacity right now to charge more than like two or three electric vehicles at a time. Their electric grid is not built up for that. So in order to provide that capacity, that will be a massive infrastructure build out to all these small towns in order to make sure that they can do this, which will be a jobs program. At the same time, historically, we've had about 2% of GDP go into core scientific research. I was actually really impressed when, uh, and surprised when Joe Biden brought it up because this was one of my talking points and he did it in the most recent set of the union, which made me very happy. Um, <laughs> right now, we only do about 0.4% of the national GDP goes into core scientific uh, research. That is a you know, four-fifths reduction. And we've seen that outcome. The money that goes into research not just improves the lives of people across our country and the world at large, 
it creates new technologies that have spin-off corporations and those spin-off companies then provide more jobs and give us real significant impact to the economy of the country. So it's, I don't view it as a sunk cost uh, sort of situation. It's an investment in not just having a planet that we're able to live in, but also to improve our economy and become world leaders in this new age of technology that eventually we'll have to get to anyways. And I want those technologies to be developed here so that we can, uh, when other people need them, we will have the expertise and we will be able to increase our economic output. Yeah, I know that that's interesting. I know on the competition front too, and I, uh, I don't know too much about energy, but I know there's a big, uh, I guess, issue of competition with China over solar panel and solar technology, oh, yeah. things like that. Uh, I did want to bring one question back, which is, you know, we've seen gas prices uh, not shoot to the highest levels of all time. Maybe some people have seen, probably the highest level I've seen, uh, maybe when I was a baby. But uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously there's, you know, uh, a lot of strain on the oil and gas industry because of the pandemic. Now we have strain on the industry because of, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine. Uh, I think Biden has kind of turned a little bit to say we need to get rid of fossil fuels. So we need energy independence and energy insecurity or insecurity. We definitely don't need insecurity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm curious from your perspective of uh, what does that technology stack kind of look like in terms of are you just solar and wind? Do you see areas for hydro and for nuclear? Uh, what is what does that kind of look like for you? Yeah, so first of all, you're, when you pulled out the aspect of China Chinese solar panels, uh, you hit a very personal issue for me because I researched fuel cells in grad school. Uh, fuel cells and uh, solar at that point were kind of competing for which one to win out and be more cost effective. I chose fuel cells and I was wrong. So now solar has become far more profitable uh, and here we are. Nobody thought that China could make them that cheap and that effective and reliable, but they have, so props to them. What I'm thinking here, when we look at the overall stack of energy production, you mentioned energy insecurity being a real problem. And I fully agree with you. Like, it is a national security issue to have energy independence. Like, for, just take Eastern Europe, for example, or even Germany. Right now, as Russia has invaded Ukraine, Germany has had to figure out how to become energy independent and cut off Russian oil and gas. And now they're accelerating their plans for a renewable energy infrastructure because renewable energy is energy independence. It is energy security. We are able in this country to harvest massive amounts of wind power, massive amounts of solar power, hydropower as well, wave power should be used both or even all three of our coasts to include the Gulf of, the, of Mexico. We also do have the opportunity for nuclear power as well. Fusion is the end goal, like by the every, like it's a holy grail of energy production would be fusion energy. And we have new research right now, which is actually showing that it might become viable for the next uh, couple of decades, which will why, be immersive. Uh, why, can, why, why can't we, you, I don't know, I, I've been seeing more writing about nuclear energy and I know I need to learn a lot more. Why can't we do fusion energy right now? What do we lack? Oh, I mean, for fusion energy, we lack the technology in order to make it happen. We just have now two experiments which have done wonders. The first one has created a fusion reaction that's put more energy output than energy went into it. And that was done here in the United States, the National Ignition Laboratory. We also had one in the United Kingdom where they had the longest sustained fusion reaction, which was awesome. It was a, like, it was still a very short amount of time, but it was sustained longer than anyone's ever done before. The problem is that we're essentially trying to recreate 
a sun or a star on our planet. <laughs> and that either requires massive amounts of gravity or a very strong electromagnetic field. And so that's kind of where we're trying to deal with how we can create and sustain a fusion reaction. Now, the, the good news is that a fusion reaction is safe. Should it be a, a failure mode, it will just collapse in on itself and everyone's fine. In the meantime, when people think of nuclear energy, they think of traditional uh, old school nuclear reactors. They think of Chernobyl, which has now just come up in the news again because of the war in Ukraine. Uh, what is really interesting is that there's been new developments in nuclear technology where you can actually have smaller plants that are safer, are fundamentally not going to undergo a meltdown and like massive end result that don't provide nearly as much nuclear waste. So there is real technology here and available in these new, uh, well, technologies. Um, there's a lot of science jargon here. Uh, but that's also why we need people who actually understand these issues in Congress, so that as we work towards having a carbon neutral or even negative economy and power output, we have people in government who understand these things. And I, I agree with you earlier when you mentioned that Congress is supposed to be a cross-section of the country, not just where people live, but also life experiences. And part of that life experience should also be training, right? It's not just lawyers, it's not just doctors, we should also have scientists, teachers, uh, people who've done uh, work in factories, people who've done work in fields. Like These are the ways that we create a government that actually represents everyone. And it's also a way that we make sure that when we pass legislation that is fundamentally based on scientific understanding, that we have people in there who can work towards that. I want to build, you mentioned Ukraine uh, a little bit in your previous answer, and obviously Congress has the power to declare war. Um, and there's there's uh, there's some members of Congress now who are unhappy with um, uh, President Biden for not consulting more with Congress. I guess I'm curious, you know, maybe we'll get into Ukraine a little bit more specifically, but but more broadly speaking, the power to have a vote to decide whether or not the United States is going to go to war or not is a really significant responsibility for a member of Congress. How would you make that kind of a decision? What kind of metric would you use to evaluate? I mean, would you like, and maybe we can use Ukraine as a case study. Um, how close do you think we should be to declaring war on Russia? Um, or do you think that, you know, President Biden's approach without congressional approval has been sufficient? Um, how do you think about that kind of uh, question? So I do think that the, the United States legislature, the Congress, is the first branch of government for a reason. And I do believe that the power to declare war, the power of the purse, and all of those other aspects are why it is the first. Historically, the Congress has delegated an increasing amount of authority over to the executive, which we've seen in the AUMF for the, um, the authorization of the use of military force in the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, which has become extremely broadly defined uh, for a very long period of time. And I think fundamentally, the United States has been at war for now many Americans' lives. Uh, if you're 18 years old, you are like basically been at war in Afghanistan the entire time you've been alive. Um, I, I think we need to very carefully weigh this sort of decision before we go into any war whatsoever. We have to look at the calculus. We have to know if by, are we going to de-escalate? Are we going to escalate? What are those red lines? And overall, 
I I think that you know the the foreign policy is not necessarily my strongest suit. And when I look at the people who are currently in Congress, I believe that you know we have the the gang of eight. I do believe that they know what they're doing. Uh, I believe that the Joint Chiefs know what they're doing. And I think that the path that we've taken so far has been fairly even-heeled, uh, fairly well-considered, and doing everything short of actually getting our people involved in a hot war. And I think that's the goal here. I think the goal is to provide the ability for the Ukrainian people to defend themselves. And I think that is the key here, is that we should be providing them with all of the resources they need in order to protect themselves and protect their home. I stand with the Ukrainian people and I believe the United States should also stand with them, with democracies across the world in the rise, in the face of rising authoritarianism across the planet. Now, I also strongly believe that we should not be drawn into a hot war with Russia, full stop. Mm. So I'll ask one more follow-up on this and then I'll pass back to Titus. When we had Nick Kristoff on last week, we talked a little oh. bit. We talked a little bit. Yeah, speaking of people who have not hold, held elective office, who ran for high office, one of the things we talked to him about, and he's super knowledgeable on foreign policy, we talked about red lines and the use of chemical weapons oh. as a red line. Yeah. You know, let's say Russia used a chemical weapon, or there's even talk of him potentially using like a targeted nuclear strike, <laughs> which is an interesting, an interesting oxymoron. But I guess I'm wondering, you know, if those were used in Ukraine and they weren't technically targeted at a NATO ally, should that change the American calculation? Is that an escalation that would be basically passing a red line that should trigger our intervention or escalated tactics? I guess I'm curious how you think about that question. I think that's an incredibly fair point. First of all, should there be an attack on a NATO member that would automatically try, trigger the retaliation uh, to defend our allies, 100%. Now, the use of biological, chemical, or nuclear weapons has essentially been banned by the international community. And I think that any, any use of a chemical weapon, any use of a biological, and certainly any use of a nuclear would, by its fundamental nature, require an escalation, not necessarily in kind, because that would be another nuclear strike, but it would require the national, international community to really come together and flat out condemn and oppose such actions. We cannot allow the use of even targeted nuclear weapons to become normalized. That will create a severe destabilization in the international community and our entire way of understanding mutually assured destruction might actually become mutually assured destruction at that point. Uh, right now, I'm not in favor of uh, no-fly zone because that does put our pilots in the direct path of, you know, of warfare, having to shoot down an enemy combatants at that point. Mm -hmm. That, I believe, is when we start talking about chemical weapons, biological weapons, that changes that calculus of, okay, well, if they're going to start nuking, then maybe a no-fly zone really is the right approach at that point. Got it. Appreciate your thoughtful answer there. Alex? Yeah, so there's uh, uh, another foreign policy focused question, but actually one that has uh, quite a bit to do with uh, your, I guess I, I'm not sure if you're still employed by Intel, but of course you were employed yep. by Intel or, or currently on leave, but uh, I'm, on leave. I want, I'm still employed. Gotcha. I want to talk a little bit about supply chains. Mm -hmm. uh, so of course, the, you know, sort of US approach to much of 
Uh, I would say economic orthodoxy from both parties has been offshoring mm -hmm. uh, cheaper materials abroad to make things cheaper for people at home. Uh, and I think that this has really come back to bite through a couple of things. One is the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and then two, if, I mean, right now there's, I think uh, China has a 25 million person lockdown in Shanghai. They just had a full lockdown of Shenzhen, which of course is where a lot of the world's uh, most important materials are produced. Uh, so there's that aspect of it. The second aspect, of course, is that uh, a country like China makes a lot of our medicine. Uh, and we're really, I would say, in a uh, global conflict with the CCP at this point. Uh, so I sort of want to get your philosophical take on kind of where you're at in terms of free trade or bring it back here. Or maybe don't. Maybe we can't bring it back here, but we should make it in Puerto Rico or Mexico instead. Uh, <laughs> kind of just curious for you to rip off that. For sure. Uh, I think that we're currently seeing an end result of the concept of race to the bottom in terms of cheapest materials, cheapest labor. Historically, there was a concept that by increasing trade across nations, including the United States with China, would foster peace because at that point, we'd have an economic tie to them in a way that they would not want to violate. I think we're seeing that logic tested now as other nations across the world rise in power, rise in strength, and start to challenge that American hegemony that we've been living under for most of our lives. I think what we're seeing right now, especially when it comes to medicine, when it comes to semiconductors in particular, is the definition of infrastructure is now changing. Because historically, we thought of that like as roads, energy, you know, that sort of aspect. We haven't thought of medicine or even semiconductors as those essential goods that really will affect a nation in terms of responding to crisis. It's a really weird thing for semiconductors because they have historically been produced and like sold as luxury, when in reality, they've more become used as a commodity. Like they're now in everything. I mean, this, their cars outside, basically everything now in the world has some sort of logic processor or some sort of memory attached to it. And having the infrastructure for the supply chain completely offshored creates a very real risk for our nation in terms of our security, in terms of being able to produce these chips and have them available, uh, economic security as well. It creates a very real lever and fulcrum situation that puts us in a position that we should not want to be in as a nation. Free trade is essential. It is absolutely worth having uh, trade across nations because it does foster international consensus, does foster a feeling of family uh, around the world in a way that helps us to Re relate to people more and it does help to promote peace. But there are certain key things like, in, like medicine, like energy, like uh, semiconductors. These are things that having robust internal supply lines becomes critical because right now we're seeing the use of oil and gas exported from Russia as a massive lever against Europe in terms of supporting Ukraine. Right now, we're dealing with uh, wheat issues in Russia and Ukraine as well, as much of the world's supply of wheat is in those two locations. That's going to be a massive impact on worldwide like, communities. People are going to either be faced with significantly higher cost of just basic foodstuffs or will starve. And this is just how it's going to uh, unfortunately play out. So I do think there's real worth to be had in terms of like reclassifying what is a national security good, what is a national security infrastructure in order to ensure that 
the United States can, should it need to, distance itself further from the Russian economy, the Chinese economy. And we don't have to worry too much on having a sort of key part of our economy mm. subject almost in exclusively to the whims of another nation. Yeah, and, and actually that's, I'm glad that you brought that up because I had a question sort of in that vein too, which I say is about what I call at least woke capital. So for example, and I'll, I'll pick on Disney here, but there's a gajillion different companies that do this is the, mm -hmm. Disney CEO came out very strongly either today, or I guess we're publishing this slightly in the future, but against the Florida bill, which they call the don't say gay bill, they have right. put out BLM statements, diversity statements, and things like that. You know, very trying to be, I would say, progressively forward on those issues. But then reverse of it, of course, a lot of these companies, when they go abroad, Disney, for <laughs> example, they filmed, they filmed part of Milan in the region where China is holding millions of people essentially in concentration camps just Uyghurs because they're Muslim. Yeah, the Uyghurs. Yep. So I'm not asking you, like, I don't think it's a fair question, like, Matt, is that right or is that wrong? But like, <laughs> just sort of like, you know. I will, I will happily go on the record and say concentration camps are bad. <laughs> it, I, I can't wait for the, the Facebook ad with that one. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just kind of curious for you to, to riff on that a little bit in terms of, you know, I think it's something, obviously, I something I see more on the right as someone, but like companies kind of uh, what I would say spewing this stuff here, but then like clearly not really exercising those sorts of, you know, nuances abroad, I would say. Just kind of curious if you yep. know on that. I think a great example of this is the status of Taiwan, to be blunt. There are multiple companies now who have called Taiwan a country and then had to publicly apologize <laughs> to the people of China. I think there is a certain level of Double speak when it comes to trying to say one thing at home and doing another abroad. And I think it's absolutely critical that we keep that in mind for our companies and we do take into account. I think it is fair to hold companies to account for their actions overseas as well. I do think we need to empower consumers to hold the companies accountable. I do fully believe that. We can't excuse those sorts of actions overseas while holding people to a different account here. We need to have the same expectations uh, across the entire world for our companies. You know, Congress must pass legislation to stop the anti-consumer and anti-competitive behavior of large companies as well. I, I think, yeah, I, I really think it's, it's a very tough question. Uh, but we can't have double standards. We just fundamentally can't. And we should be able to condemn pussyfooting around the issue of slavery, of concentration camps, of potential genocide. And we should feel fully empowered to condemn that. Absolutely. Um, well, you've survived our policy section. We've got uh, one quick uh, one quick politics question, and then we will close. Um, and this is mine. Alex was making fun of me for this question, but I actually think it could be revealing, depending on uh, depending on uh, you know how much you've thought about it. But so I guess I'm wondering, especially since you're new to elected, you'll be mm -hmm. new to elected office if you win. Is there a current or former member of Congress or United States Senator? that you think of and you're like, that's the kind of model that I would want to have as a way of operating, right? Like you've got different examples. You've got, um, you know, AOC, um, who's like very aggressive in your face, like holding protests, et cetera. You've got some folks who are more behind the scenes. 
um, some folks who specialize on specific areas. I guess I'm just curious, is there a model or an individual that you can think of where you're like, that's probably the mold that I would try to, to fit as a, as a member of Congress? Honestly, I would say that John Lewis is the answer that I, I mm. always come back to. Uh, the man's life and legacy are beyond reproach. Uh, this is a man who lived by his principles day in, day out, breathed them, and never went back on it. He chose fights that he decided were worth having. He specifically got into what he called good trouble. Yes. And I think that is a, that is a mold that I could only hope to live up to. I think it's too often that we choose to uh, excuse behaviors or too often that we choose to make compromises on moral aspects. And I think John Lewis overarchingly refused to do so. And I think that's the sort of person that I would want to be in office, just to hold fast to my beliefs, to advocate fiercely for my values, but also to work with people as much as possible in order to make sure that real change and real value to Amer everyday Americans is passed. Awesome. I think Alex thought you were going to say Madison Cawthorn. So good answer on uh, on John Lewis. Uh, well, our final question. Quite really Matt, different people. Fairly different. <laughs> I think those actually might be exact opposite figures. <laughs> um, but our final question is: uh, If folks are interested in learning more about your campaign or what you stand for, or they want to get in touch with you. What's the best way for a listener to uh, be involved? Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for that please go to our website, uh, www.mattwestforcongress.com. Uh, we also are on Twitter, at Matt D. West. Uh, please reach out. We are very easy to get in touch with. Uh, the email address you can use to contact us is info at mattwestforcongress.com. I am very proud of the fact that my staff and team are out in the field. We are very responsive. We're very easy to reach. And I look forward to speaking with people who want to reach out. Also, Matt West for Congress on Facebook. Awesome. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the Oregon Bridge and having a, a wide-ranging discussion about policy and politics. We, we really enjoyed it, and uh, we'll see you on the campaign trail. I really appreciate it, too. Thank you so much for the thoughtful questions. <laughs>